0: Jesus spoke profound words as he hung on the cross. Words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Words of pastoral care. This is your mother. Woman, this is your son. Words of hope. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Words of obedience. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And words of victory. It is finished. But in his gospel account, the writer Mark chooses to only record Jesus saying words of despair, words of anguish, his cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Have you cried out to him in desperation and heard nothing but deafening silence? Have you ever let, been let down by people or felt Abandoned? Have you felt truly alone or like you've had the weight of the world upon you? You see, Jesus's cry from the cross speaks not only to God the Father, but also to you and me in our moments of anguish. But why did Mark choose to record these words of despair spoken by Jesus from the cross? Was it because Jesus, as the long-awaited Messiah prophesied about, was finally here and fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies about him? Well, partly, yes. Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is indeed the first line of Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. And throughout Mark's account of the crucifixion, we see Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies again and again, such as when the soldiers cast lots to divide up Jesus's clothes, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 18, or when they offer him wine vinegar to drink, fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21. But Jesus's cry of despair from the cross wasn't just him ticking a box of prophetic fulfillment. Jesus was well and truly suffering as he hung on the cross. Crucifixion, as we know, was excruciatingly painful, a slow and torturous death through the combination of the pain and trauma of severed nerves, blood loss, heart failure, and ultimately asphyxiation of the lungs. Even the word excruciating itself comes from the Latin word excruciatus, which means out of or from the cross. And Jesus, however, was not the only person to have been crucified down the ages. So for example, in 71 BC, 5,000 slaves who'd rebelled with Spartacus were all crucified and many Christians down the ages have been crucified. Take, for example, just a couple of years ago, those crucified for their faith in Syria. Jesus was not the only one to have gone through this physical execution. But you see, as painful as it was physically, the greater suffering, utterly unique to Jesus on the cross, was that God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, Jesus, became accursed for us, hanging on a tree, and he bore our sins in his body. And as our sins were laid upon the innocent Jesus on the cross, he endured estrangement, separation from his heavenly Father. As the one who had declared, I and the Father are one, This was a greater tearing than that of his body. This was a greater loneliness than the abandonment of his friends and disciples. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So great the horror as the light of the world is here murdered that the sun itself bows to the darkness that had covered the earth at the beginning. The chaos is come again. This is your hour when darkness reigns. This was the greater pain of the cross for Jesus. But as as C.S. Lewis said, a deeper magic was at work. God used this evil and the willing sacrifice of the Son as a satisfaction for his justice against sin, as an atonement to cover the sins of the world It's a mystery that can't be fathomed, but only received. But why was it Jesus who had to suffer this way? Well, I wonder, who do you think Jesus is? Mark's gospel is all about this one question, who is Jesus? And throughout the narrative, we see how people constantly fail to grasp who Jesus really is. Have you ever noticed how people are not always what we expect them to be like? Years ago, I uh, went to Albuquerque in New Mexico in the US because I was going to meet uh, an academic, uh, Dr. Jameson, who was at the cutting edge of Bible translation and the distribution of scripture to the most unreached people groups in the world. And uh, I'd never met him before, and he'd never met me. He just knew that I was an English priest. So I landed at the airport there in Albuquerque, came through arrivals and the airport was packed. Lots of people meeting people off the plane. It took forever for the crowds to disperse, but eventually after a long time, they'd all gone. And there, left standing in the airport, were just two people, myself and this very tall cowboy wearing an enormous cowboy hat, a big buckle belt and snakeskin boots. I thought, well, that's obviously not Dr. Jameson. He mustn't have arrived yet. And I waited for what I thought would be a small man with little round glasses, a tweed jacket and a briefcase to arrive. He didn't. After five minutes and then 10 minutes, I started to think the unthinkable and eventually plucked up the courage to approach the cowboy. I said, "Uh, excuse me, um, this might be a strange question, but you wouldn't happen to be Dr. Jameson, would you? And he said, well, lasso my horse with spaghetti. I sure am. But you're not the English priest, are you, boy? I do apologize to my American friends for the accent. But you see, this was the thing. We'd both been standing there forever confused because both of us had a preconceived idea of what the other one should be like. And likewise, the Jews were waiting patiently for the Messiah, the one who would save them and liberate them. Jesus was, Jesus is the Messiah. In Mark eight twenty nine, the apostle Peter even declares to Jesus, you are the Messiah. But Peter, like most Jews, expected the Messiah to be a victorious leader who would overthrow the Romans through strength and force, rather than the one who would overthrow all the powers of darkness through apparent weakness and sacrifice. Straight after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus explained how he must therefore suffer, die, and after three days rise again. Peter was having none of it, saying, no, this cannot be. This cannot be how the Messiah is meant to behave. But Jesus is clear, declaring, get behind me, Satan, and then saying to Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. Peter, like everyone else in Mark's gospel, didn't understand that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, but also the suffering servant king prophesied of in Isaiah 53. The Messiah came precisely to suffer and to die. Jesus, God himself, was the only one worthy to be the perfect lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover, the day the Jews remembered how they had escaped from slavery in Egypt and God had brought them out of that land. You probably may well know the story. The curse of death had come over the land and each Jewish family sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on the wooden frame of their doors so that death would pass over them, hence Passover, keeping them safe. And then Pharaoh relented and released them from the grip of slavery. The blood of Jesus, the perfect once and for all sacrificial lamb of God, shed on the wooden frame of the cross, means that the curse of death now passes over you and me, over all who choose to put their faith in Jesus and freedom from the slavery of sin is now ours. The priests in the temple back in Jesus's day, they also slaughtered uh, the daily sacrificial lamb called the Tamid. They would do this twice a day at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. Mark records how Jesus was first nailed to the cross at 9 AM, it's called the third hour back then. And he dies on the cross, yep, at 3 PM, the ninth hour. And during these two sacrificial times, the priests in the temple would say special prayers, the 18 benedictions. And these prayers included prayers for the coming of the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of the people and the resurrection of the dead. God himself in Jesus Christ would answer and fulfill all of these prayers by dying on the cross for us. You might be amazed as you're hearing this. Your heart might now be racing, your spirits lifted. But you might be wondering, you might have a nagging doubt in your mind. This is such good news, but can it really be for me? As I said before, throughout Mark's gospel, people are constantly confused and misunderstand who Jesus truly is. Up until the crucifixion in Mark 15, the only person to have correctly declared Jesus as the son of God is God himself. With the voice of God, the father from above saying, this is my son whom I love said both at Jesus's baptism in Mark chapter one, and then at his transfiguration in Mark nine, when he'd gone up the mountain with some of the disciples and he shone in glory. And Mark makes a clear connection between his account of the transfiguration and that of the crucifixion. Both events happen on a mountain. Elijah is present at one and mentioned at the other. The transfiguration involves bright light as Jesus shines in glory. The crucifixion involves darkness as Jesus takes upon himself our sin and shame. The presence of God the Father was audible at the transfiguration, but at the crucifixion, his absence was palpable. At the transfiguration, God declared, This is my son. But here at the cross, we see the very first person in the whole of the gospel narrative to declare Jesus to be the Son of God, and it's a surprising person. Verse 39, we read this. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. The the cross reveals who Jesus is, and it wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't even his own disciples, but rather it was a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-Jew, one of those responsible for Jesus's death, who is the first to see, the first to believe and declare who Jesus truly is. Most of us watching this are probably Gentiles, non-Jews and it's on account of our own sins that were laid upon him that means we're also the ones ultimately responsible for Jesus's death. But just like the centurion, right now you can believe and declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And this returns us to those moments of anguish despair and loneliness when we feel like crying out my god my god why have you forsaken me we can be comforted by the fact that god has not forsaken us he's died for you he's saved you he so loves you and having gone through greater pain than anyone will ever endure His promise is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And you don't suffer alone in those moments. Verse 38 says that at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the curtain that separated the people in the temple from the Holy of Holies the place where the very presence of God dwelt on earth, his HQ here in the world. And the curtain of the temple was also symbolic of the partition of sin that prevented us from being in God's perfect presence. And this curtain in the temple was huge. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. It took 300 men just to lift it and put it in place. No human was capable to tear it either literally in the temple, and certainly no imperfect human was worthy or capable to tear the partition of sin that it represented. But notice how verse 38 tells us that the curtain was not torn from the bottom to the top as a human might try to tear it, but it was torn from the top to the bottom because it was God himself who tore it, both literally in the temple, but more importantly, God the Son who tore through the partition of sin by tearing his own body on the cross for us. And this means that God, by his Holy Spirit, has removed the partition and is now always with you. Even during those moments of anguish or pain, his spirit is with you to bring you comfort, to bring peace and an assurance that your eternal destiny is secured in Jesus. And one day you will be resurrected like him. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we can be forgiven. He was transfixed so that we can be transformed what began with a cry of abandonment ended with a symbol of God's presence, the tearing of the curtain. And today, like the centurion, stand in front of Jesus, see how he died and declare, surely this man is the son of God. What we're gonna do now is a symbolic act. It's a sort of kinesthetic act of remembrance. And if you have a piece of paper anywhere near you right now that you don't need, why don't you just grab it? And what we're going to do on the count of three is tear this piece of paper. Now, of course, this is a symbol of a symbol. The curtain in the temple was a symbol of the partition of sin, and this is a symbol of the symbol. And of course, We do not ultimately do the tearing. God has already done the tearing. But let this be a reminder that there's no longer any barrier between you and the presence of God, and that his promise is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. So on the count of three, I'm gonna tear this. One, two, three. Now you can keep this torn piece of paper, maybe in the back of your phone case or stick it inside your Bible or on your desk or on your fridge. Let it be a visual reminder. And because there is no barrier, and I'm not just referring to a curtain here, I'm referring to the barrier of sin. We can pray now for God's presence to fill us again. So why don't you just still your heart You might want to put your hands out in front and echo this prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you fill me now with the presence of Christ? And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just echo this prayer. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for me. I now declare that you are the Son of God. I turn away from the the bad things in my life that hurt you, that hurt others, that hurt myself. And thank you that you forgive me because of the cross. I receive that forgiveness right now. And because you have removed the barrier between us, please would you send your Holy Spirit to come and dwell within me now and forever. Amen. I'm